FSMD Health System Dallas. Here's Craig Smoke and Grayson Grundhafer. Baylor 32, Cincinnati 29. Welcome in, everybody, to the BearCast on Sikkim365.com, where this week we will be discussing a Baylor win over the Bearcats this past weekend. And also looking forward to the next contest with five games to go as the Iowa State Cyclones roll into Waco on Saturday for a meeting at McLean Stadium. Hello, everybody. I'm Craig Smoke, joined as always by Grayson Grundhafer and behind the scenes, Garrett Ross pushing all the right buttons and making us look good and sound good. And we do appreciate everybody out there for listening, whether live on Tuesdays at 11.15 a.m. on the Baylor Athletics on Sikkim 365 YouTube page or after the fact on your favorite podcast platform. Um, but uh, glad to have you and glad to be talking about a win this week, a nice change of pace and only the third time we've been able to do so in seven weeks of this regular season. But now entering week eight, the possibility for number four. And Grayson, how are we doing this week, man? I'm doing good. I mean, it's always nice to talk about a win uh, for the Bears. And so we'll get to talk about that, dive into that a little bit, which is good. And outside of that, you know, it's just been a, uh, a good week. You go off the bye week, come back. Hoping everything's reset, recharged, and they got a huge win. So, yeah, I would say it's it's been a pretty good week. Yeah, uh, it was an interesting week in the Big 12 as well. We'll have some picks there towards the end of the broadcast uh, from this week's games. But Oklahoma still standing tall atop of the league. And you've got uh, Texas and Iowa State, who, again, we'll be talking about in just a moment. Oklahoma State, Kansas State all at 3-1 and one right now. And then you've got uh, a number of teams, 2-2, two 2-3, and two, two and three. Uh, they're at the bottom, Houston 1-3, and three, and the two Ophers, UCF, and because of that loss to Baylor on Saturday, Cincinnati dragging up the rear along with the Knights, but I think of all the teams in the league, they're feeling the most down at the moment about the state of things for sure. So uh, we'll start off by talking about Cincinnati, and then we'll preview Iowa State, and then we'll have a mailbag with your questions before picks to close it on out, but we are limited on time as we always kind of push up against it every week, and uh, there are... You know, you'd like to just be able to go as long as you want to, but we do have other obligations and other shows, and so we kind of do have to be smart with it. So, Grayson, let's just dive right in, man, into uh, into this game against I, uh, excuse me, against uh, Cincinnati, and uh, just your first thoughts on what you saw from Nippert, and anything stand out in particular as far as just the game itself, but with outside of the action, and um, kind of just this first meeting uh, ever, not kind of, but it was the first meeting ever between the Bearcats and the Bears. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like a good atmosphere. I know Ashley Hodge was actually at the game and came away really impressed with Nippert Stadium and just the environment in general. Uh, from what I could see on TV, I mean, it, it was uh, it seemed like a pretty good crowd, and they seemed to be you know really invested in their football program, the fans at least, um, which, which I think is something that comes with how much success they've had. But it is interesting because, like, when I went to the game uh, versus UCF, the Baylor-UCF game, you know, those fans left after halftime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, product of that was getting, you know, them blowing out Baylor in that first half and maybe thinking the game was over. But I think what I saw from the Cincy fans is they were there the whole game. And I know they were losing at halftime, so maybe that was part of it. But I think in general, they seem like a fan base that's really, really excited about their team, much like BYU. Um, and I think that's kind of polar opposite from Houston and UCF in some regards. Yeah, they were loud. Unfortunately for the TV broadcast, ESPN Plus, uh, there was one particular lady who was louder than everybody else, and her shill, uh, shrills uh, could be heard throughout the broadcast, and eventually it sounded like they moved the microphone, 
and you could still hear her. It was just farther away, but you could still hear this like piercing scream throughout the day. So eventually it just like blended in to me because just the human body is fascinating and we kind of filter things out after a while. But man, that was, that was something else at the start of that game um, that kind of took over. Uh, but eventually settled in and kind of drowned that, like I said. And, yeah, they had a big supportive crowd that smelled blood in the water and saw a weak team coming in that they felt like they could get their first Big 12 win over. But, alas, that was not the case. Um, and they are still searching for said win. But I did think that there was some good support and seemed like a good atmosphere. And J.J. Joe told us his only surprise was just a bit smaller than he expected Nipper Stadium. But outside of that, and it wasn't a knock, it's just it was smaller than he thought it was going to be, um, but that he really you know liked the venue and everything like that. So it seemed to be a successful first trip and one that uh, hopefully if you went on, you enjoyed. And let us know if you went on it and what the experience was like, but let's get into it. Uh, Cincinnati got the ball first in this game, and uh, well, they proceeded to go on a 10 play, 59 yard drive to open the game up. And you could tell that they were feeling feisty right out of the gates, get all the way down to the Baylor 20 yard line, and uh, actually had first down and 10 on the 29. Um, got second and six, third and six, five yard run by Emory Jones, setting up a fourth and one, and then a loss of three yards as Emory Jones fumbles the football is able to recover, but that squashes the drive. And so right out of the gates, uh, Cincinnati's being aggressive, as you would expect, in the red zone, at home. What do you have to lose? And the Baylor defense comes up with a big stop, so a, a nice way to set the tone right out of the gates. Although you relented, you gave up a lot of yards. You got fortunate there at the end, but a stop's a stop, and you got the ball back. Yeah, gave up a lot of yards, and especially on the ground, which was going to be a sign yep. of things to come with Corey Kiner. Um yeah, not a good drive, I didn't think, for Baylor. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is what it is. You got to get the stops when you need them. And so fourth and one in the red zone is a huge deal. You know, and third down stops, like all of those things become extremely important. I think for this Baylor team in particular, uh, they're going to give up yards. Like, that's just who they are at this point. But can they get the stops when they need them? That's something they haven't done all year, but they absolutely did that in this game. Yeah, let's make no mistake. Uh, you don't want to give up yards. You don't want to be backed up to your 20. You'd like to play, you know, old school, like, Alabama defense and just dominate. But, like, beggars can't be choosers. So, if you can get a stop, no matter where you get it, you got to stop, and that's better than the alternative of allowing a score. So, they got fortunate there, got a stop right out of the gates, didn't do anything with it offensively, uh, but what was very noticeable is no running plays on the very first drive of the game, uh, but they go um, out uh, on four plays and have to punt the football. Uh, Cincinnati gets the ball back. They go three and out, uh, and they punt the football back to the Bears, and then finally you get to the first points of the game on the fourth drive after taking over at the Cincinnati 33. Blake Shapin hits Richard Reese for a gain, but... False start penalty, uh, eventually gets it to Dominic Richardson. It's going to eventually set up a 54-yard field goal by Isaiah Hankins, and he hits it uh, 54 yards right out of the chute. And so uh, that was a good sign and a sign of things to come for sure. We didn't know that at the time, but nice to get some points on the board, and it's 3 nothing. Yeah, this is the kind of drive that drives you crazy, though, because Josh Cameron had a huge punt return on this to set this up. And you get the ball at the Cincinnati 33, and once again you're just sitting there going, 
hey, man, you get a great opportunity. How about you go score mm-hmm. a touchdown? And, I mean, yeah, you make a 54-yard field goal, which, I mean, Isaiah Hankins was money in this game. But, like, you don't want to be sitting there time after time trying to kick 50-plus-yard field goals when you get the ball in that kind of position. I was pretty disappointed in that drive. But still, you come away with three points, and you kind of at least get going a little. And Josh Cameron's return, another slice of a, a lot of different things that went right on special teams. But you're right, you would – like to have it turn into something more, but it did turn into points, just not the amount of points that it probably should have turned into. And when you look at this game, for as much as you can say, well, Cincinnati could have, should have, would have done this, like Baylor left a lot of points out on the board as well. So it goes both ways, but only able to get three off the big Josh Cameron return. Cincinnati gets the ball, and then all of a sudden you're like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. A lengthy 14-play, 75-yard drive. Lots of running by Emory Jones and by Miles Montgomery and lots more running and running and moving the chains. And eventually uh, they end the first quarter with the ball right on the doorstep, the Baylor eight-yard line, first and goal. And then uh, on second and goal, Emory Jones, Xavier Henderson capping off the lengthy drive. It's seven to three and a a bit deflating given how you've given up the whole field basically on back-to-back drives defensively. And there was no big stop here. So uh, the Bearcats get on the board. Yeah, ran over again. And really, I mean, I know Emory Jones throws the touchdown here, but anytime Cincinnati decided to throw the football, Baylor was very happy mm-hmm. in, in this game. I mean, they got ran over. This drive was probably the prime example. We're going to have a, there's going to be another drive that's kind of similar, but this drive was the one where they truly just grinded, grind all the way down the field and scored. It, it was pretty deflating, I think, also because we saw the Baylor offense struggle at this point in the game. Yes, they did. So they get the ball back and uh, didn't struggle this time around. A big uh, completion to Keetron Jackson, which would start to uh, show us uh, what kind of a day he was going to have. And I'd said multiple times, you know, players have to make plays. Uh, I've been consistent about that. And also last week, I think, made it a, a clear point to talk about how the receivers in particular needed to be tougher and get up and make catches and get mean and I think, you know, Keetron Jackson was kind of highlighted the most in that, and it was a great thing to see from him because he did all those things this week. He just didn't find the end zone, but he made a lot of big catches, including 41 yards to kick off this drive and get them into Cincinnati territory. Uh, Blake shaping a little bit hit or miss as far as the passing game, but able to pick up a big gain as well as Monterey Ball went on the ground. Um, and eventually it's Blake shaping from three yards out, 10-3 Baylor, um, and uh, this one's... Oh my gosh, are we getting a shootout here? What's going on? But uh, a nice response by the Baylor offense. Yeah, and something Baylor utilized a little bit in this game, and I know everyone's been very critical of Blake Shapin running the football, but they did run that QB power a few times, and it worked out pretty well. And on this specific play, they got a touchdown. I believe on the 14-yard run a little bit earlier in this drive, they did it, but they did a few times, and it actually did work out. So uh, that's an intriguing wrinkle that they haven't used a ton this year, but I felt like really paid off in this game. But like you said, the big play on this drive, that Keytron Jackson catch was just phenomenal I believe that's the one where he went up against safety and bobbled it got hit and still came down he came down with it and I feel like in previous weeks that falls to the ground or whatever and so it's like yeah that was awesome to see he went up and got tough and look at what look at what happened and um, I think that that spread throughout the rest of the game now one thing notable here is Blake Shapin ran 14 yards so they had run the ball but 
You also saw Monterey Baldwin get a carry. So they're technically running the ball, but it wasn't with their running backs just no. yet. Um, so that was something that two drives in, you still haven't had a carry by the running backs. And, and they still didn't run the ball great. Right. They just no, had a but, few things. But they yeah. ran the ball. It's just, you know, it's still, though, at this point, has not been a handoff to Richard Reese or to Dominic Richardson or to Dawson Pendergrass or anybody at this point. So coming out of the bye week, what kind of wrinkles were they going to use? Well, for one, they weren't tempting trying to run the football and force it especially when it wasn't working like we've seen them do uh, how many times? Like way too many times of just slam into the wall. It was clear they were like, all right, that's a waste of time. We'll run where we can, but we're not just going to hand it off for no gains and and waste down. So uh, that was pretty clear. Cincinnati would go um, on to end up punting a few plays later as uh, Baylor comes up with a, a stop defensively. They also got hurt by a delay of game that made a fourth and four, a fourth and nine. They punted away. Baylor gets the ball and uh, is able to turn into a field goal. More points, eight plays, 47 yards, and a little less than three minutes. Um, Blake Shapin gets sacked. He fumbles. He's able to get back on the football, uh, but that does lead to Isaiah Hankins once again lining up and kicking a field goal, his second on the day. And this one, 43 yards, which... You know, almost like take it for granted in this game what he was doing, but he wasn't just making field goals when they really needed it. He was making long field goals, 54-43, right out of the gate. So it's uh, all of a sudden, um, wait, 10-7, to right? Is that where we are here? 13. uh, I'm sorry, after that field goal, it's what? 13 to 7, 20 to 7. Uh, yeah, I think the, it's the 13 ESPN to 7. Way off, yeah, yeah, the ESPN one is off, isn't it? That's usually what I go by as far as a guide, but uh, now that I'm looking at it, it is completely out of whack and it's got the score um score out of uh, out of line here. So that's going to screw me up as I use that as a little bit so of a guide. So it looks to me that Byron so Blake Shapen had that run touchdown, then Byron Vaughn's had the fumble return which it has out of order here. So the fumble return came right after the Blake Shapen touchdown. Yeah. That made it 17 to 7. Then the drive that wore on Hankins buries the 43-yard field goal to make it 20 to 7. Do want to mention on that touchdown by Byron Vaughn's big hit by Jeremy Evans that forced that ball out. Another youngster making plays. Vaughn's picks it up, goes 15 yards for the score. And yeah, so now we're at 7-18 left in the second quarter. Hankins buries that field goal. It's now 20-7, to and Baylor has all the momentum. Yeah, um, thanks for getting that. I, I hate that they did that because we skipped right over Byron Vaughn. We did. Um, and the big, so, one, probably the biggest play of the game. Yeah, so right after, I apologize, but... Thanks, ESPN. Guess that was part of their budget cuts. Um, so Blake Shapin gets a three-yard run. Yes, right after that, fumble on the kickoff. Um, was it Jeremy Evans that forced yeah. the fumble? Byron Vaughns picks it up, runs it in. So there we are back in, in line now. 17-7 to uh, was your score. And then Isaiah Hankins' 43-yard field goal after getting a stop. And it's 20-7. to So they are starting to roll a little bit. And, man, what a what a play that was for Byron Vaughns. Uh, Jeremy Evans, though, to create it. And, you know, the return man bobbled it to begin with, and so it was all kind of out of whack. And that was something Scott Satterfield was really uh, just flummoxed by, you know, because you can't afford to make mistakes like that. And especially you look at the end result of this game, and uh, that was obviously a huge uh, swing and and turn of events and plays made uh, consecutively by the Bears, which uh, has not happened a lot this year, but it was huge for it to happen here and give them a little bit of breathing room and some confidence on the road uh, to just kind of light that fire or at least throw a little bit more gasoline on it early on. So that was uh, terrific to see. So after that big touchdown by Shapin, the touchdown by Vaughns, and then a field goal, 
It is 20 to 7, uh, but then here comes Cincinnati, and you realize, oh, that lead's not that large because one score, and all of a sudden, bang, it's, uh, it's a close game once again. Uh, this one, not much to it. Emory Jones, big 30 yard gain to Xavier Henderson, a couple of runs for seven yards total before Miles Montgomery goes 38 on third down and three. And uh, he takes it to pay dirt. It is twenty to fourteen as the Bearcats answer back. Yeah, and this is one of the worst missed tackles of the game. I mean, had him at the line scrimmage, and Miles Montgomery does a spin move in the hole and is able to get to full speed and get. I mean, that that's just not rallying to the football. A guy doing a spin move at the line scrimmage should not allow him to get into the open field and go score a touchdown. That that was a very frustrating one, and one of the things I think people have been very critical of the lack of tackling and focus and things like that. We saw it. A lot in this game, especially by the linebackers and the secondary, just frankly, just missing tackles in the open field and giving up extra yards. And when you do that, you're going to give up big rushing lanes and you're going to give up, you know, what, 300 yards to running backs on the day. Yeah, it was a a matter of not being in the right place, you know, the run fits, and that's been a recurring issue. And coming out of a bye week and against the team you knew was going to run the football, that's a little bit perplexing. Um, You know, at this point, the whole youth and experience thing, I understand they lost. Um, uh, Mike Smith, and so there's been more guys playing, but like, man, it's it's like week eight. Are we still not knowing where to be at times? And then it's still like not getting physical enough to make tackles. And and so I know part of it's an age thing, it's an experience thing. Like when you're going up against another, like people have big guys too. They're gonna run pie you and, and through you and things at times. But yeah, it's just it's um it's not very good tackling, and it's a uh, it's a problem that leads to a lot of other bigger problems, and leads to games that are closer than they probably should be on on some occasions. Yeah, and I think this is why they brought in Mike Smith, and this is why they frankly did not trust their young guys at this point in their careers. And so Mike didn't really have a great showing, honestly, for the first part of his time at Baylor. But I think he clearly would have been an upgrade over what they've been showing over the past few weeks. So it's been a little troubling. They got to get that fixed. So Baylor, uh, all of a sudden, it is. Uh, 20 to 14, they would turn the ball over on downs um, as they would uh, go for it on fourth and two at midfield and Blake Shapen gets sacked, which is what you love on your fourth down play, right? Is for your guy to get sacked. But uh, Deshaun Pace with the sack and Baylor is uh, turning it over on downs. But luckily, the defense gets a stop, force a quick three and out. And after an unsportsmanlike penalty, um, Baylor gets the ball. Uh, set up and uh, they then turn it over on downs once again a lot of downs and turnovers on both teams um, with this but uh, at the Cincinnati 40 Blake Shapin sees his fourth and two pass fall incomplete and uh, it is once again Cincinnati football yeah and that first one you talked about in turnover on downs they had third and one at the 50 and they ran two plays and couldn't get a yard and that, frankly, has been the story with this team. I mean, my goodness, against Tech, it happened time and time again. You have to be able to get a yard. I don't know how they do it, but they got to figure out a way to make that more manageable and more consistent. Uh, some way, right? Like, somehow, because against Iowa State this weekend, you're going to have to go for it on fourth down some. And you got to be able to make those plays, and they haven't been able to do it all year long. And it's because their offensive line has struggled so much. So it's 20 to 14. Uh, Cincinnati gets the ball back with a little bit of time remaining in the second half, a little over a minute. Uh, unable to do anything with it, however, end up punting. Baylor gets the ball back with under 30 seconds left. And um, 
tried to do a little something with it late, but after a Blake shape and pass falls incomplete at their own 27, they decide to just tuck it and take it into the halftime. So it is a 20 to 14 at halftime and Baylor gets the ball at this point. Kind of what's your thoughts? Um, they're leading could be by more. There's kind of signs of like, Hey, that running game, they need to be better about stopping that. Hey, they don't have a running game to speak of so far at this point. Um, and so just sort of where was your mind at this stage? Um, Baylor had to play better is kind of where I was at because they got that touchdown off the, uh, you know, the special team score. They had some opportunities in there offensively, but I think in general they weren't playing well enough offensively for you to have a lot of confidence and their defense wasn't playing well. So I think at this point you're kind of thinking, okay, Baylor probably has to score something. You would think something like 28, maybe 30 points if their defense doesn't play better in order to win win this football game. And I didn't know if they could get there uh, at the moment. I, I felt like the game was definitely hanging in the balance. I think in the first half, since he might have been the better team, to be honest, yet Baylor had the lead. Yeah, I was seeing a lot of that on my timeline of like, well, they're still leading, but Cincinnati's still better. And it's like, okay, well, you know. Score's not showing it. It's like, you know, I know they just scored a touchdown, but don't let that fool you. Cincinnati's better, and I don't know, it kind of at some point I was just like, you know what, this team's not very good, so I'm going to enjoy when they're leading, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to enjoy, and I don't don't care that it's not like a 10 out of 10 showing, like, take what you can get, and, uh, you know, I know this doesn't set them up for a Big 12 title run next year, but look, man, it's like week seven, and they're just looking for or week eight and they're just looking for wins where they can get them and so first half technically a win as you uh, went into the break with the lead and would come back out and increase your lead in the second half a six play 75 yard drive to start the second half as Jake Roberts catches his first touchdown in green and gold since transferring uh, this offseason a six yard pass from Blake Shapin and in doing that he becomes what the third target to catch a pass in the end zone or, or you know, catch a, a passing touchdown this year, joining Drake Dabney and Monterey Baldwin. That's it. That's the list. Jake Roberts now joins it on uh, a six-yard pass from him. It is 26-14. to 14. Yeah, and this was a really interesting play design. It was a screen to Jake Roberts, and it was blocked really well, and he was able to get into the end zone. This was set up by the 55-yard strike to Keytron Jackson, so another huge play by him. He outran uh, the Cincinnati defensive backs. That was a really, really great ball by Blake Shapin as well. You get a touchdown there, and that is the point where I was like, okay, Baylor's figured out some things with the Cincinnati defense, and that was really the first moment where I I said, okay, Baylor's flipped the script, and now they look like the better team, at least at at the moment. Yep, so 26-14, and Cincinnati gets the ball back. They drive it down into Baylor territory, get deep into Baylor territory inside the red zone, and on fourth and three at the 15-yard line, Emory Jones goes to pass, and uh, it is incomplete as uh, Devin Lemire's in on the play, and they turn the ball over on downs again, and that's something that you know they had to look back on and how deep they got into Baylor territory multiple occasions and did not walk away with anything. So their rolling of the dice did not pay off for them so much in this game. So a big stop there by the defense, and they would eventually close out the third quarter by tacking on some more points and extending it to a 29-14 to lead as uh, Blake Shapin and company uh, would get it down into Cincinnati territory, and Isaiah Hankins comes through once again, a 46-yard field goal this time, just a ridiculous day for him, and that's why he was the Big 12 Special Teams Player of the Week, um, but he boots it through 46 yards out. It is 29-14, to 
And um, you're entering the fourth quarter at this point. Yeah, and anytime Emory Jones threw the football, Baylor was happy, so he threw the football in fourth and three. Baylor gets the stop, and then this is a fool, this right here, this field goal drive by Baylor is the fool Jew drive. And the reason why I say that is because they ran all over Cincinnati on this drive. They ran for, fit, I think it was seven, eight, 20 yards, one and one yard. So what, I mean, almost half of their rushing yards for the game came on this drive. And this was where you thought, oh, now they can run the football. They're going to be able to run on Cincinnati. They're about to open it up offensively. Again, bit a bit of fool's gold on this drive, but a, a nice run by Dominic Richardson for 20 yards, by far their best run of the day came on this drive. Yeah, they were not very successful running the football or just weren't trying to. It just kind of depended mm-hmm. on what part of the game you were, were looking at. But uh, did get the run game going a little bit. And, um, you know, we'll talk about some of the changes after the game that all led to this, but this game was not over at this point. Cincinnati gets the ball back, and here's where it gets wonky because they can't just breathe and have a, an easy win. They've got to make it interesting. So 12 plays, 62 yards uh, to start the fourth quarter for Cincinnati where they would convert on third and 10, third and five, third and three, uh, and eventually it is Mike Montgomery with a one-yard run as uh, they get into the end zone, it is suddenly a one-score game, just like that, 29-21. to 21. Again, you felt like Baylor was okay, though, because they kept moving the football, at least in the second half. But, yeah, I mean, that, that drive was tough because of all the third-down conversions, and those are the plays that Baylor's got to be able to make a little more consistently. We're unable to, gave up a touchdown, but responded pretty well. They did. Uh, so they get the ball back up 32-21 and proceed to take seven-plus minutes off the clock. 15 plays, 57 yards, had a bunch of conversions on this drive. Didn't get yourself in a third down, turned second downs into first downs and kept resetting um, the chains. But eventually, after some Dominic Richardson and some Dawson Pendergrass and leaning on their run game a little bit more here, as well as a little bit of Blake Shapin, including um, another catch by Keetron Jackson that would end up mattering as his big day continued. Uh, eventually, Josh Cameron in the action and uh, unfortunately forced to settle for a field goal after an intentional grounding by Blake Shapin, and that got really hairy because it pushed him back far enough that you're like, even with uh, the field goals going through, like it almost is setting up for Hankins to miss here yeah. and then turn it into a, t- a total disaster. But he was nails, 43 yards, is good again. And, uh, man, that made you feel pretty good about things because now it's 32-21, and Cincinnati's feeling the pinch of the clock at this point. Yeah, Blake's got to stop doing this. I, I, I don't know the exact number, but he's got to have three or four intentional groundings this year. Yeah. It feels like he has won a game, and this one very costly. I believe there was one in the UCF game at the right before halftime that led to them missing a field goal in that game uh, to go into the half. Yeah, this did get scary, but Hankins, what I mean, what he's a the day. MVP. What he, a day. He was the MVP, but, yeah, Shapin just throw it away um, but instead you cost yourself or just take the sack and you still don't cost yourself as much as an intentional grounding call does so um, yeah very fortunate there um, to to get out of that jam yeah and that's just one where once you don't have it that ball needs to be thrown to the sticks and out wide and just you know you just can't take this many yards loss. I know you make the field goal, but a 43-yard field goal is so much different than a 33-yard field goal. Yes, very much so. So, Cincinnati would not go away. They're going to make it interesting there. Six plays, 75 yards. Uh, a lot of um, passing on that drive from Emory Jones to move the chains. And uh, eventually, Mike Montgomery uh, with a big gain of 35 yards to take it deep into Baylor territory and to flip the field. Um, but then 
Uh, you had Xavier Henderson, a big day for uh, the Bearcats on offense. He scores from 29 yards out on first and 10, and then they go for the two-point conversion, and it is good on, um, what would you call this? Was it the, the swinging gate? Was that uh, yeah. quite the terminology for it? I saw that, but I, I don't know that that was that. It was um, They moved them all out wide and then moved them back, yeah. and then there was a timeout. It took forever for this play to run. Yeah, yeah I was waiting for it. Baylor to call a timeout at some yeah. point because clearly everybody was confused by what was going on, right. and yet they just kind of just went with it, and it ended up being a very easy two-point conversion for Cincinnati. Um, that made it 32-29. to 29. So all of a sudden, a one-score game with five minutes to go. Then Baylor punts, unable to get any points on the board, eventually having to punt it away after uh, just six plays and a little over a little less than three minutes off of the clock. So Cincinnati gets the ball back with a little over two minutes to go with a chance to tie the game or take the lead and win the game. And eventually it boils down to a 4th and 11 at the Cincinnati 42. And Emory Jones' pass is incomplete as the Bears get a big stop. And who was in on that play? Corey Gordon. Yeah, Corey Gordon in on that play to help break it up. You're holding your breath, waiting for a flag or just anything, but nothing. It's a stop. And uh, the Bears get the ball back with a minute 30, able to run it out, and they win 32-29. to 29. So... A very interesting, um, dramatic game, uh, but a big win on the road. And they are now 2-0 and on the road. And they are now 3-4 and overall and 2-2 two and two in Big 12 play with that victory. Yeah, really excited for uh, Corey Gordon to make that play. That's just a huge confidence booster. And I know Cincinnati fans were mad about it. But, like, listen, one play doesn't change the game. And also, it was a terrible design on the play. The receiver wasn't even at the first down marker. He would have had to catch and get, I think, like two more yards. It just... I, I felt like it was actually a really good play by Corey Gordon and one that you probably can't call, um, just in my opinion. But I understand why Cincy fans might be upset. But in general, Baylor gets the win. They found a way. And that's important for this team as they move forward. they got to start building confidence if they want any hope at making a bowl game. But this was a step in the right direction, for sure. They played a lot better. Their game, their game plan was better. And they are now 2-0 and on the road. So weird. they got to get back to McLean Stadium and start playing better. Yep, so 300-plus yards through the air for the Bears. Uh, Blake Shapin with a nice day. Uh, had some mistakes, as we talked about, like the intentional ground, and you got to be smarter than that. But uh, 80 yards rushing, uh, most of that in the second half, as, again, they didn't really attempt to rush very much uh, in, the, in the first half, but kind of part of the setup there. Um, but that's something that does have to be better uh, moving forward. You can't expect to run for 80 yards and throw for 300 and be successful most weeks, especially not this week. Um, I don't think that that formula is going to work exactly well, um, but we'll see. Uh, so just good to get a win, good to get the bad taste out of your mouth from some of these previous games. And one of the, the big stories coming out of this game was a shuffling along the offensive line. And uh, they made the move, Grayson, of Colton Price, the redshirt freshman, uh, t- took over at center. And then you had uh, Clark Barrington, who's been playing center, moves over to left guard. Uh, his brother Campbell's at right guard. So you've got the Barringtons now at the guard spots. Colton Price there in the middle at center. What, Ebicelli at left tackle and Gavin Byers at right tackle. And uh, that is your offensive line at the moment. But uh, that was some of the off-week tweaking and something that Aranda said that they had discussed for a couple of weeks at least and had just held off on making the move. But it was one of those things where you get the bye week time to reflect and you go, well, what are we doing here? Like, we need to do something. And um, you kind of just, you're in your own head and you are afraid of change almost. And, well, I mean, at least for one week, this was a change that uh, 
ended up working out well for them. So what are your thoughts on the shuffling along the offensive line and, and what difference it made on Saturday and what difference it might make moving forward? Yeah, I mean, they had to do something. And also, I mean, if you watched you know closely, which is kind of a tough thing to, to pick up on, but uh, Caden Siraki also played some left tackle. He and Alvin rotated a lot in this game. Gavin Byers played right tackle, which is interesting. I, I think it worked out well in this game. I think that a big focus here was how were they going to pass protect. I think that was a big focus on kind of the reasons behind this. But I also think in general, the biggest thing for me is you're putting Clark Barrington at back at a position where he was really, really good at. And so you're giving yourself a chance to at least have one really, really good offensive lineman, which I think is crucial. They need all the good offensive line play they can get. And so if you move him there, if you just hope Colton Price can hold up uh, and be physical, which it seems like he will be able to do, you should have upgrades at this position. I think it was needed. It was something they had to do. Uh, It worked out well in this game. I think when they get home, it should work out even more. Um, Should being the key word because they have not played well at home. But getting a young guy his first start in the road, then getting him back home should do wonders for Price's confidence. But, yeah, in general, they had to make the move, and I I felt like it paid off. And another thing uh, that was talked about uh, quite a bit in the uh, postgame and then the uh, Monday media session, but uh, also mentioned on Monday Hal Presley going to miss some time uh, with an injury. So if you're looking for where he was on Saturday, he had already been hurt, I guess, in the practices leading up. Yeah. And uh, so now he is going to be out for uh, some amount of time as uh, he looks to – uh, heal up from an injury suffered in practice. Yeah, and he'll likely be out the rest of the regular season. I mean, six to eight weeks puts you out of the regular season at that point. So I think the hope is if they make a bowl game, he'll be able to come back. But six to eight weeks, that timeline that Dave Aranda gave does not have him playing again during the regular season. Yeah, and that's unfortunate, especially when Keytron had as big of a game as he yeah. had, and you'd like Hal to be able to, to build off that. But uh, an undefined lower body injury or lower leg injury is what it was uh, referred to as. So um, that's what was passed along. And, yeah, it stinks uh, for Hal Presley because he's a guy who obviously is, is you know filled with some talent and uh, won't allow this receiving core to maybe fully gel like it could have. So they're going to need some other guys to step up. But Keytron Jackson playing the way that he did – uh, was a nice step forward in general for that group. But I uh, hate that for Hal and hope he can get better soon. And uh, for him to be able to play again this season, they'd have to go 3-2 and two down this stretch. So that would start uh, with Iowa State and needing to get a win against Iowa State to uh, try and put you in, in the best position possible to make that happen. And make no mistake, not looking ahead to bowl games. that Like, if they win two games in the next couple of weeks, and we'll start talking about the possibilities. But until then, it's still pretty far off. And, well, quite frankly, it depends on when and where you looked, but Iowa State will roll into Waco as slight favorites. Now, they may have tipped since I last looked. They're one-and-a-half-point favorites um, the last I checked, uh, despite being the road team here. They're coming in a little bit hot. So uh, your thoughts on we, we know is always going to be a well-coached bunch and a team that, um, from the looks of it, had to deal with the gambling scandal, taking out you know some of their starters uh, from you know uh, the very get go. Uh, you're sitting there in preseason thinking that you know this guy's going to be your quarterback and this guy's going to be your running back and this guy's going to be that and this guy's going to be that and all of a sudden all these guys aren't even on your team anymore because they're caught up in this gambling issue. Um, so that bites Iowa State, kind of knocks them sideways. But uh, to their credit, they've been able to to you know run through the fact that they've had some inexperience and had some unforeseen uh, curveballs thrown their way. And 
Um, they've been able to keep their head above water. So what are your thoughts on Iowa State rolling in this weekend? Yeah, I mean, Iowa State's won three of their last four games. Uh, the wins being over Oklahoma State, TCU, and Cincinnati. Uh, the loss coming to Oklahoma, uh, 20-50. to 50. Obviously, they started the year a little bit rocky with a loss to Iowa and Ohio, which was a really shocking loss, 10-7 to 7 in that Ohio game. Early part of the year, they uh, were really bad offensively. And it showed up. I, I mean, Iowa's got a great defense. Ohio's got a good defense. But their offense was really, really miserable. But over the last three games, I think what has really changed for them is their run game. Uh, first four games, they ran for 333 yards on the ground. Two touchdowns, 2.89 yards per carry. Last three games, 488 rush yards, three touchdowns, 4.78 yards per carry. That's key because Baylor's allowed at least 143 yards rushing in every single game this year. So it looks like Iowa State will likely be able to keep this trend going um, with their ability to run the football. And if they're able to do that, it definitely kind of sets up things and takes some pressure off their young quarterback, Rocco Becht, uh, who was not supposed to be their starting quarterback coming into the year. That was supposed to be Hunter Deckers, uh, but now it's Rocco. And he's okay. He's a game manager. He's not... There's nothing he does that really wows me. He has four games this year completing under 61% of his passes. He only has one game throwing for over 241 yards. He's okay. He's just an okay guy. He's a guy who kind of sets the table for them. But when they run the football, it really, really helps their offense kind of excel and play well. Um, On the outside at the wide receiver position, Jaden Higgins is the guy to watch. He's very, very good. He transferred from Eastern Kentucky, had 757 yards and 10 touchdowns there. Um, He's 6'4", 210 pounds. He's got three games with over 90 yards receiving. He's kind of the guy, the dude on the outside to watch uh, who could expose a Baylor secondary. They also have a good slot receiver in Jalen Noel. Um, So that's kind of their offense, and they use a lot of tight ends. Obviously, that's kind of their signature, and they're just going to try to get physical. I mean, that's what they're going to try to do against this Baylor defensive line. Yeah, they are not super flashy. They do have some good skill guys, though, but the running game has been a constant for them over the years, and you've got... um, you know, an opportunity every Sunday to turn on an NFL game and hear the name of a former Iowa State, um, you know, running back out there. It feels like there's, you know, Dave Montgomery, Brees Hall, whatever, but it feels like there's almost a, a guy everywhere. Um, and I think probably it's the Brock Purdy factor, too, that you just hear his name a lot or, um, you know, maybe some of the receivers they used to have. But there's there's some pretty good Iowa State representation across the NFL every Sunday. And um, that's a testament to Matt Campbell and his program. But also, yeah, just overcoming what they did this offseason and a lot of the changes. And, yeah, the fact that Rocco Beck's not Brock Purdy. Um, but he's been able to, you know, improve and just gain experience. Uh, some thoughts were it was going to be J.J. Cole right out of the gates, but he's hardly seen the field. It's been the Rocco Beck show. But um, the development of uh, Eli Sanders and – um, the rest of the running backs has been a, a slow work in progress because you just kind of always expect them to have Brees Hall, David Montgomery, those they guys. Lost, uh, in the offseason, the gambling scandal, they lost Jarrell Brock, who's yes. supposed to be their guy. Yes, so it's been a matter of just kind of some unknown guys in comparison to them having their star guy back there at running back. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's something that's kind of coming along now at this stage. So uh, still some work to do. But, yeah, I think their biggest playmakers seem to come out of the wide receiver room as far as the guys that can sting you the most. And and should also mention there's no Ch- Charlie Kolar anymore, you know, where you kind of got accustomed to that as well. So not uh, star-laden, but that's not really Iowa State's thing. It's just the l- recent years they've kind of had that, that grouping at times. Um, but some guys who are gaining confidence and getting better and – you know what, this Baylor defense isn't 
isn't uh, talented enough to look their nose up at anybody. They're so, not. They're absolutely yeah. not. But I, I would say that this is one of the weaker offenses they will have played this year. Should be, yeah. Should be, right. It absolutely should be. I mean, Baylor's played some good offenses this year to some extent. I mean, Tech's looking a little up and down now, but their offense was pretty good till Baron Morton got hurt. And They're then, on QB3 at this right. point, who's a... Total fish out of water right now, yeah. yeah. And then you got Texas, who Baylor played. Utah, who just lit up USC this week. And, I mean, Baylor's played some good offenses. So, I'm curious if maybe you play a weaker offense at home, if that does help you a little bit. Also, Texas State's offense is really good as well. So, very different styles here, but a very interesting matchup in that the two weakest points of both teams are going to be going against each other. And it's it's just... It's very curious to me because Iowa State's offensive line isn't very good. Baylor's defensive line hasn't played well this year at all. Uh, The secondary for Baylor is looking like it's getting better, but Iowa State doesn't throw the ball well. So it's just a a very interesting kind of conundrum there, I would say. As opposed to last week when you had weaknesses on strengths or vice versa, this is more of weaknesses on weaknesses or strengths on strengths. So, yeah, yeah. and uh, well – uh, the offense, as we said, is kind of been figuring itself out and finding its stars and finding its footing. Um, but having some guys step up in major way, and, and they do have some dangerous wide receivers, but uh, defensively, you always know they're going to be good. Um, maybe not quite as good like the top level of what we've seen, which is a pretty high bar, but their lowest bar is still way better than most teams in the country. Yeah, so I was really surprised this week when we heard from Dave Aranda. Uh, I guess this was just yesterday. Um how he said that this is a game where Baylor needs to run the football and they feel like they can run the football. And I was surprised to hear that because, you know, all bye week and going into the Cincy game, it was all about we're going to have to throw the football. We know what Cincy has up front. We know how dangerous they are there. We're going to have to throw it a lot. But going into this game, he shifted it. And I kind of wondered why because – I think conventional wisdom would be, wow, you don't, you're not going to be able to run at Iowa State. Like Iowa State's got a great defense. But if you look a little deeper, here are the reasons why I think Aranda said that. Iowa State is 97th and 105th in the nation when it comes to tackles for loss and sacks. They're not forcing havoc plays, which have been the biggest problem for Baylor's offense is Baylor is 116th and 111th in tackles for loss and sacks. Once again, week on week, right? So how, how does that one out there? Um, and so I think that's key because if they're not going to create havoc plays and Baylor's going to be able to get a yard or two yards every time they run the football, it's going to put them in better positions on third down to maybe get third and fives more often or third and fours. Um, the other reason I, I think he said that is Iowa State's allowed 106 yards rushing at least in every game this year. Pretty interesting number there. Uh, Three games over 130 yards on the ground. So in the three games, they are allowing 30.3 points. So when they give up over 130 yards on the ground, they're giving up over 30 points per game. In all other games, Iowa State's only allowing 12.25 points. So literally, there's 24 yards in there separating you know, 130 yards from 106 yards. But it's been the difference in the Iowa State defense giving up 30 points versus 12 points. So rather interesting there, 130 yards is, I think, the number Baylor has to get to if they want to really put on a great offensive showing, meaning score around 30 points, and Baylor's only done that twice this year. So again, weakness on weakness to an extent there. Yep, uh, so that should make for an interesting matchup. This is a winnable game, um, but Iowa State's rolling in thinking the exact same thing. Uh, there's no love lost. Uh, a partic- I don't think the Baylor fans really care that much about Iowa State. I really don't. I don't think it's really something that ever... 
um, enters the mind all that much until like there's a reason for the interaction. Whereas I feel like I see a lot of strays from Iowa State fans at times, like uh, in Baylor's direction, yeah. or especially when the Bears are brought up. Um, I don't know if that still goes back to the Corey Coleman kick return, but I feel like that really like lit a fire that's been burning ever since. Um, and and don't need to give specifics. If you know the Corey Coleman kick return against Iowa State, you know that's where a lot of it started and has grown from there. But um, yeah, there's no love lost. The fan issues and the other things, the the fight of uh, uh, Ames a few years ago. You know, like there's just been these little tiffs that have. Uh, Throwing more gasoline or more logs onto that fire, but yeah, there will be no love loss rolling in. Um, anything else? Just you want to point out before we get into this mailbag here? Yeah. So I mentioned uh, the Iowa State run defense, but we do have to talk about their secondary really quick. They have one of the best secondaries in the nation. Oh, yeah. um, Jeremiah Cooper is one who leads it, um, as does TJ Tampa. Uh, Cooper has five interceptions and four pass breakups. He was actually offered by Baylor, took an official visit in the 2022 class before picking Iowa State. I actually think Baylor. Not, I think Baylor picked someone else instead of him, and he ended up at Iowa State. Just my personal opinion there. But uh, they're second in the nation with 12 interceptions, 11th in pass efficiency defense, 11th in yards per pass attempt, and 31st in total passing yards. Blake Shaben has zero interceptions this year, but uh, this is going to be probably the biggest challenge he's had uh, from a secondary standpoint, which, again, is why Baylor has to run the football. I did also want to point out a couple just other news notes on this. Uh, the Cyclones are 3-4 and four following a bye week during Matt Campbell's time in Ames, so they're coming off a bye week here. That bodes okay for Baylor. Uh, he hasn't been dominant outside of uh, the bye week. And then Baylor is 7-3 and three in their last 10 meetings against Iowa State, um, but the last four have been decided by one score or less. And then you mentioned the Bears beat the Cyclones 71 to 7 in 2013 which is their worst loss in school history yeah so you can <laughs> see where that stings a little bit and and the fact that you know the, the the points that put it really over the top were like yes a young Corey Coleman pre-Bolitnikoff buzz running a kick return back when it's already a I wish they could have kneeled it no they, scored, they could yeah. have but I mean I know that that was like that was a like rubbing alcohol in the wound back then, and it's it's never really fully healed, I don't feel like. But, yeah, this has been an interesting series. Um, right now, as it stands, Iowa State's slight favorites rolling into town, um, and they are sitting slightly above in the standings. But this is one of those games where, like, if Baylor wins, you're at 4-4, four and four, you're 3-2 and two in the Big 12, um, you're at home, and that hasn't mattered. But I think Dave Aranda let it be known in his press conference, like he realizes that the home thing's becoming like a thing, and it doesn't need to be a thing. It needs to be a strength. It needs to be an advantage, and it's been anything but. And so I think that there is going to be a an extreme focus on playing well at home because they just have to do. They have to play better at home. It's been a long time since they went and handled their business, and no Long Island doesn't count because that wasn't even an impressive performance. Um, so. Um, it's been few and far between. We've seen big wins at McLean. I think given the circumstances, this isn't beating Oklahoma, you know, when they're ranked in the top 10, but this is for this team, I think a big opportunity, uh, to really get some, some positive momentum going in this second half. So, um, let's get into the mailbag and just see what, uh, kind of 
all gets answered here. But I think we've covered a lot of bases um, and and a lot of notes. And so let's start off with uh, Baylor Dad seventy nine gentlemen. Several threads have suggested this season there's a lack of talent on our football team. However, that doesn't seem to match our national recruiting ranking over the past several years. Do you feel our roster issue is really a lack of talent or more an issue of lack of experienced talent at key positions? Or something else. I mean, again, I think there's talent, but the talent is young. Like the really good high end talent is young guys. And so they're having to mature and grow up over the course of this season. That has a lot to do with the 2019 and 2020 classes being rather weak, uh, very, very weak. And so I don't think the roster is not talented, but I do think there is a lot of undeveloped talent because a lot of the guys that are very talented are still young. And by that, I'm looking at the 2022 and 2023 classes. Um, They're just not fully grown up yet. And so we're seeing it grow, grow up before our eyes. And that's why I challenge people who are like, you know, if Baylor makes a bowl this year, everyone wants signs of momentum going forward. That is a sign of momentum going forward. And Dude, would be if they a make huge a bowl this year, yeah. yeah, it'd be a huge accomplishment for this team to turn the corner a little bit, especially when everyone's been saying it's a young team. Well, it's young guys growing up. That would be a great sign of what kind of the where the program is trending, even though I know we're all anyone who covers or watches Baylor was disappointed in their first six games. I totally understand that. But if they turn that corner, it would be a, a very positive sign. It would be, but uh, they're still three wins away yeah. from that being a possibility, and there's only five games to go. So, But you're right. Like If they were able to pull that off, but they need to like win this weekend and then win again, and then we can, can really delve into that. But that would be a win, but it's still a little bit farther away at this point. But, yeah, I think Baylor Dad, it's a, it's a combination of just uh, mostly young people trying to grow up and not being able to do it as quickly as, as it would satisfy our desires for them to grow up. I think that's, that's really the biggest thing. And I think the fear that you have is – you know, it looks like there's a lack of talent because it's young talent that's not exactly exploding just yet. But the fear comes in is like, okay, great, they're going to turn into something and we see signs of it, but are they going to be around long enough to turn into something where they benefit you when they do turn into that ultimately? Right. And and so that's the, the part that will be determined in the off season and with, you know, all the different the you know things like NIL and just your talks and your 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 plans moving forward for them and all of that that will get sorted out after the season um, but that's where you kind of get nervous is like okay cool we'll be patient but can you guarantee that they'll all be here to right. be patient and see the payoff for cuz that's where it becomes hard as a fan these days um, but yeah Baylor dad I think it's just it's young it's youth um, is is their biggest issue at the moment rather than not having any talent uh, useless Kim degree thank you for the question looking at the matchup Saturday what does Baylor need to do to win against the Iowa State secondary is there a possibility the tight ends have a big day yeah I mean the tight ends are gonna have to play well this past week they had six catches between them with Jake Roberts and Drake Dabney I even believe Kelsey had one as well so seven catches I guess on the day so they played really well this past week I think with no Hal Presley they're gonna become even a a bigger part of this offense Um, so yeah I mean I, I do think there's a possibility I think for Baylor though in order to do anything against Iowa State secondary, they have to run the football. I mean, if they're going to sit back there and just expect Blake Shapin to do what he did against Cincinnati and not have any mistakes, I think they're going to have some issues with that because their secondary is too good to be throwing it 42 times while only running the ball for 80 yards. Like, that's too much pressure uh, on their pass game. If they can run it effectively, get to that, you know, 120, 130-yard mark, I think that bodes really, really well for them having some success in play action and RPO-type situations. 
Yeah, it worked out okay the way they set it up against Cincy and knowing that that was a fierce run defense and knowing that Iowa State is as well. But, yeah, they can't run for 80 yards and no. expect Shapin to throw for 300-plus and, you know, all that. Now, we should say Shapin left some throws on the bone the other day. Like, he could have hit Keytron for a potential touchdown down the middle of the field, and that was an area that Aranda really wasn't happy with was – um, their RPOs and just some of the throws and and missing uh, missing the plays that were there to make, especially in the middle of the field, down the field, um, just not able to to put it in the in the bread basket and and get runs after the catch and and get those big explosive plays that would have really opened it up even more so. And so uh, that was that was missed opportunity by them. I think that's a function of them kind of trying to establish that over one week. So I do think we'll see improvements there. You are right. I mean, there were missed throws. There were missed opportunities, breaking tackles. But I do think that's something that we should see get better as they run it more in practice because, frankly, they weren't doing that at all at the mm-hmm. beginning of the year. Yeah, and but it's, it will be challenging as Iowa State yeah. is going to be looking for that. And, you know. Um, well, and that's their strength is yeah. their secondary. Cincinnati's right. weakness was their secondary. Right. So, so you're going to not attack them in the exact same way. But how do you attack them? And if you do, like, can shape and make the throws? Can Keytron and others make the catches? Can they run after the catch? Um, run after the catch is a big thing that he pointed out as well that uh, is missing right now. Um, so thank you, uh, useless Kim Degree. But, yeah, I'd expect uh, the receivers, I mean, Really, you got Monterey, you got Keytron now that you feel better about. Keytron's got to keep it going, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, your tight ends. I mean, those are pretty much your your most confidence yeah. in, in your weapons right there. Cameron so. was solid, too, this weekend. Yeah. I'm curious if Winfield maybe plays. But solid, I don't know if great is the expectation there. But useless Kim degree, it would make sense to, to have the tight ends pretty heavily involved. Sammy Grace Bear, thanks for all you guys do. Don't post much, but always anticipate listening to your show. Well, thank you, Sammy. Uh, in a similar line, or Grace, or Sammy Grace, uh, thank you. Uh, in a similar line with Baylor Dad 79, our O-line seems to have significant struggles, and a name I heard frequently during an offseason was the lineman out of Georgia, Sean Tompkins, but I have not heard about him during the season or tell that he has even played a snap. Do you have any idea why he's not playing or heard anything on his progression? Yeah, I mean, he's a true freshman who didn't enroll early. So, I mean, he's a very young prospect, a guy that I'm, I'm very excited about. I think his future is very bright, but right now, you know, you got older guys who have played a lot of football, who have been in the weight room for five plus years. So you're playing those guys over him right now. Uh, but I do think his future is very bright, but right now he's just, I don't think he's quite ready to be a starter yet. After reading Travis's Monday review, watching clips, I do not know the difference between an RPO and a play-action pass. Can you please explain? I clearly am an average fan and not a player. Well, that's all right. No need to apologize there. Yeah, so, I mean, RPO is truly you have a run-pass option. That, that's what it means. So when you see Blake Shapin kind of stick it in the running back's stomach but then be able to pull it back and make a throw, that's him making the option between the run and the pass. Based play- on what he sees right. from the defense. Exactly. So if he sees run, he hands it off. If he sees pass, he pulls it back and makes a throw throw play action is truly the play is a pass play that you're faking to the running back and you're throwing the football there is no choice involved yeah play action pass you're passing the football no matter what you're going to pretend like you're giving it the running back to keep the defense you know off their heels or to to get the defense moving how you want them to and then you're going to hit them with the pass Uh, it's all by design rpo you're you're choosing on the go there yeah. uh, based on what you see, you know, in that in that moment leading up to it. Like if you watch Baylor when Art Browse was at Baylor, their whole offense they ran RPO all the time. Like mm-hmm. so often. That that's kind of what we're talking about with Petty, you know, faking it to Shockland Water Lake C Strong. Stuff like that is true RPO, and that's what Baylor started running this week, which was new for them. Yep. So a lot of that's gonna be a shaping and uh being clean with the football though in those exchanges, because you can see the
that a lot of times, like the mesh points and the RPOs, like sometimes the quarterback and the running back aren't on the same page, or you see a new quarterback come in or a new running back come in, and then all of a sudden they don't have like the right experience yeah. with each other, and you put the ball in the wrong spot, and everything just goes to hell, and fumble you fumble the ball, fumble yeah. the ball a lot. Um, that shouldn't be the case here with all the experience these guys have, but it's going to be on shape and to read defenses and to know to make the right decisions and when to make the right decisions. So yeah, play action will always be a pass because that's the play RPO. Um, you know, it'll be it'll be Shapen's call most of the time, or all the time, uh, to decide what to do with it. Um, and hopefully that answers your question. Uh, Rye Pry, what's up with Franklin Hall and Randolph? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say they've been great. You know, TJ Franklin and Gabe Hall have combined for four and a half sacks. I think the expectation was for them to be more like 10 sacks. And I do think there's time for them to turn it around, but they haven't been great. And they've been inconsistent. And the problem I'm having, and that this is something that I'm sure most people have noticed, TJ Franklin has been in position to make so many plays this year. Like, infinite amounts of plays. And he just is not wrapping up guys, not able to complete the play. It's really tough to watch because he is putting himself in position. Gabe Hall has kind of had to play a lot of defensive tackle, slide into nose tackle. So I think it's kind of been harder for him to get in a groove as far as sacks go. Uh, But both of them made an impact this past week, which has been nice to see. Garmin Randolph has had a disappointing year, got injured. It just hasn't really all come together for him yet. Aranda did highlight TJ Franklin and his conversation with Smokey. um, And you mentioned Gabe Hall, I think, as well briefly, but talked about TJ and how it has been kind of a tough year for him, but that he was very proud of how TJ was, like, pumping people up on the field and on the sidelines, like, even in despite of not playing all that well, that through that he was still, like, being that leader, which hasn't always been the case, and that's kind of what more they need is leadership to step up, and so it was a positive, even if, like, statistically it doesn't it doesn't jump out to you, but it is a good development. Um, but yeah, I mean, not as noisy as you would like in, in the in the good kind of way. Um, but uh, just we'll see how these these last five games go. Scotty, be the Baylor King. Where's the Sailor Bear football helmet ranking? Your opinion out of the current Baylor football helmets, and this is uh, because just yesterday uh, the football program released a picture of the Sailor Bear green helmets and. Um, basically alluded to the fact that uh, they're coming back. Said, welcome back, old friend, and just had a picture of uh, the Sailor Bear helmet hanging on the wall. So uh, that seems to indicate that we're going to see the return of the the Sailor Bear helmet. So where does it rank for you, Grayson? Of their current Baylor helmets, I mean, it's probably either one or two. It's this one or the white helmet. I like the white helmet a lot. But, yeah, Sailor Bear is probably number one. I I enjoy it. It's a good thing for homecoming. It's exciting and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah, one or two. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd probably say one or two as well. Um, don't love the yellow. Um, I'm still not down with, with those just yet, like as far as uh, being my favorite. Um, the green's fine, but it's just kind of plain. So, yeah, I'd say the white is probably the sharpest-looking one, but Sailor, Bell would, Sailor Bear would be right there. So, like 1A, 1B basically yeah. would, would be where I'd go with that. Uh, who has a higher, ce- higher ceiling, Baylor men's basketball or women's basketball? This is this is a good one. This is tough. Um, Scotty B always brings the heat. Yeah, I think that I I I think their ceiling is equal. I think they both can make a final four. I think that that makes them rather equal. I, I do. I think they both can make a final four. Can is being the operative word. Um, I would probably go with men's though. Slightly, yeah, I, would. I need to see it more from Nikki Collin for me to really get fully on board. So I'll, I'll give a slight edge to to men's, but I, I think there's a high ceiling for both. I mean, I think both expected 
last longer than they did last year uh, in the postseason, oh, yeah. and uh, that should be the case, and you would hope is is the case. But yeah, I, I would give the slight lean to, to the men as well. I just think a bit more proven there at this stage, and a bit more bang for your buck. But uh, I don't know. You know, we haven't seen this women's team and how it all comes together. So maybe we're changing our tune here in a month or so. But um, or these next few weeks, I should say. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I lean men slightly, but I think they also have more of a competitive field to have to deal with as well. So there, yeah. there is that. Um, but the good news is that it's a, it's a good question to have Scotty B and, uh, one that will be interesting to revisit as the season goes along. And he says, anyways, let's give a shout out to former Baylor pitcher, Cody Bradford are making the world series as part of the Texas Rangers. And this is where I try to be professional and not run off all of our Houstonians that listen to this podcast, but go Rangers. Uh, and yes, <laughs> Uh, that was fun. Um, that was uh, that was amazing. But you know, I think I, I speak for probably a lot of Rangers fans. Going to soak in this for like a day or two. But it been here, done that, and it's cool to do it against the Astros. But man, it doesn't matter unless you go win the rest of it, right? I mean, that's the thing for this team that's been missing. That's what they don't have, and that's what they they need to go and accomplish. But yeah, Cody Bradford ended up being a much bigger part of the equation than uh, anybody could have thought at the beginning of the year, and. Um, he's had to be thrown into the mix a lot. And so, yeah, good for, for good for Cody Bradford, um, and, and the Rangers organization. Who's your favorite baseball team? Pirates. Pirates. Big Pirates fan. Yeah. My dad lived in Pittsburgh for a long time and I was born in Indiana, didn't have a baseball team. So I just attached myself to the Pirates. But if, if I'm picking one of the Texas teams, I would choose the Rangers over the Astros. Front runner. No, I'm just kidding. That's fine. Welcome aboard. No, No, No. but I'm not jumping on the bandwagon. I'm I'm a Pirates fan, but I'll be, you know, I'll be watching. I'm hoping the Rangers do well, I guess. Yeah. And I, I mean, look, the Astros have had their, their fair share of successes. So, um, it's, it's nice, uh, for the Rangers to have a little bit of that, but yeah, Cody Bradford will be playing in a world series. And I, I realized on Twitter that a lot of people didn't know that he's from Baylor. Like there was yeah. Rangers fans that were watching. They're like, Oh, I didn't realize he's from Baylor. I think I saw, um, gosh, who was it the other day? There's a couple of people that like Deontay, maybe or buddy Deontay. And maybe, maybe it was him. I, I can't remember, but like, Oh, I didn't had no idea. So yeah, good for Cody Bradford. Uh, let's see here. Master, uh, wait. Just a bear. Just a bear in Frog World. Hey, fellas, the expect- expectation let down, notwithstanding. What's a good finish to this season look and feel like in your opinion? I, I think that as long as you don't get blown out outside of the Kansas State game, I think that that would be not getting blown out and probably winning two more games, I think, is a good finish to the season. That's kind of where where I'm at. Uh, yeah, I think going like two and three, I'd be kind of okay with. I feel like that would not get you to a bowl game, but I'd be like, I think five and seven would be a strong finish given how it started. Um, uh, can't get that blown would be out by good. Seed, yeah, but you can't get blown out by anybody. You can't destro- get embarrassed by anybody like the end of last year when like K State just physically and emotionally and mentally destroyed you. That's probably going to happen again, but. K-State probably, but like play respectable against K-State, win two or three games. You know, if you got into a bowl game, I think that would be an amazing success given how the season started off with. So, uh, yeah, win at least a couple more wins would, would be okay. Mm-hmm. Anything less would be a letdown. Master Pierce, MPH, choose one for the rest of the season. Would you rather have a Baylor team that is A, fix the O-line to allow for a respectable rushing attack and better pass pro, or B, fix defensive front that could set the edge in linebacking core to have a respectable rush defense? I'm going with A, because I think if they get A, they'll make a bowl. Like, if they get good offensive line play, I think that changes everything because they'll be able to score points if they can run the football and actually convert third and one or fourth and one. Yeah, I'd go A as well because I do think it also gives them a better chance to win. Um, 
And I'd prefer seeing them shoot out than like yeah. seven to three losses or you know the, the or low scoring losses. So yeah, I'd go with, with what can put more points on the board and keep you on the field offensively and keep your defense who can give a big place off the field. Well, and I feel more confident that if their offensive line is fixed, they'll score points. But I don't feel as confident that if their defensive line is fixed, that that means they're not going to give up points. Right. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Yep. Thank you, Master Pierce. Yogi, if I ask you a question, will you appreciate it? Um, always, and we do appreciate that question right there. Um, Brazos, the O-line and star. But There's a couple of I appreciate it, Dave Aranda jokes that I've had yeah. uh, in the last 24 hours. Jack had one when I was texting him yesterday. Um, Yogi, if I ask, okay, yeah. Brazos, the O-line star, both been reshuffled with new starters, new positions. Would you want to see changes made at D-line, safety, and linebacker, or at least give some guys more time on the field and more time at a new specific position? Safety, I'm okay with. I think Devin Bobby, Devin Lemire, Carl Williams probably give them the best chance at this moment. I like what I've seen from DJ Coleman, but I I think that that group is probably what it is at the moment. Uh, Defensive line, um, no, like you can't make changes. You got to play Gabe Hall and TJ Franklin and Trey Wilson. Like you got to play the guys that they're playing right now. I don't think you can make changes there. I would like to see a little more Brendan Bed and Trey Emery going forward as Emery's now healthy and Bet's getting uh, older. Linebacker's the one where I really want to see Carmelo Jones more. I think that guy needs to be on the field. Um, play him next to Matt Jones and roll with it. See how that does. You've given Josh White an opportunity. You've given Brooks Miller an opportunity. I think he's next in line, and then Jeremy Evans would be after that. But I, I think Carmelo Jones, there might be something there as he gets refocused and, and actually becomes a part of the game plan. Burger 86, defensively, we are bad. Aranda is considered a great DC. We are the worst tackling team in the Big 12. We can't set the edge. We can't fit the run. We are soft. Please don't say we are young or Matt's first year as DC. Truths, please. Well, they are young. That's being truthful. Like, that is being truthful is to say that they are young. But, no, it's not all over. Like, the D-line shouldn't be, you know, getting pushed around at their experience level. But, in, in spa- like, the secondary is young. Like, yeah. that's just black and white ink on the paper that that's that's undebatable but um yeah i don't really know how to respond to that they they are bad on defense they're not nearly what they should be for a defensive dave aranda led football team that is that is factual no they're not and they didn't take enough transfers and yes they're they are young in the secondary my my bigger issue though is like their oldest guys haven't dominated right like they're okay but there's also a reason why there's six year guys that are still around too and i think that's a Personally, I think that's a talent issue. I do, and a motor and and everything like that issue. When you've been around that long, and if you're still not producing at a very high level, I think that speaks more about the individual player than the coaches. But I do agree, their defense can't be this bad under Dave Aranda. That should not be happening. Yeah, and I think Aranda knows that too, Berger. And there's just only so much you can do about that at the moment. And so it is what it is. And uh, I would imagine you see that very much a focus of the offseason. But I do appreciate you. Travis Roeder, a member of the uh, the team here. Why have you been hiding the fact that Matt Campbell is your favorite coach? That has to be directed to you. Has I've to never be. once indicated that I'm a Matt Campbell fan in any way. I don't think I've indicated I'm not a fan either. But um, he's, he's making a joke towards me because I, I figured it had like, to be. I don't think Matt Campbell's a great coach. I All think right. he was given a whole lot of credit for having a a. a Clearly a very good quarterback that I, I think led them to this point. I think he's a fine coach, but I don't think he's some elite great coach that he was kind of built up to be during that stretch. You didn't like get into all the Mount Union mystique? and um... No, I just get into that he's an offensive-minded coach and they still have bad offense. And their best part of their team has been Joe Heacock and, or John Heacock and what he's done with their defense. And I just there's something wrong about that. It's 
Kind of similar to why people are asking questions about Dave Aranda's defense, I think. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think he's a good coach. I think he's done a wonderful job at Iowa Mm -hmm. State, um, and not everybody could do that. Um, He's been uniquely great for them, and I understand why there's always a buzz about him in a a rat race of always trying to find the next big thing. You see a guy who can take that program and make them as respectable as they are and put guys in the pros and get to a Big 12 title game and do all those things. Uh, It is – you know, it's impressive by their standards. It is. But, you know, would that translate to him doing that at Alabama on a regular basis or whatever? Yeah, I, I don't know about all that. But uh, I, I don't have a problem with Matt Campbell. I, I, he he has rubbed me the wrong way, but I think you watch anybody long enough and there's going to be, like, in the heat of battle, things that you eventually don't like about somebody in, right. in any given moment. So I do appreciate how hard his teams play, though. Yeah. That's, a, that's directly correlated to the coach. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate that, Travis. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, Mort Dog, what are the odds Brooks Miller stays in the lineup? He sometimes overpursues, but I like his aggressiveness. I, I don't see it. I did not think he performed very well. He's probably going to have to play some, but I, I don't think that he's going to remain the starter for the entire season. All right. Um, well, short and to the point there, Mort Dog, uh, appreciate you and um, everybody else in this mailbag for the questions this week. A lot of good stuff here, and hopefully we answered uh, your questions uh, to your to your satisfaction. Uh, thank you for throwing those in there. And I guess now only one thing left to do is uh, make some Big 12 picks to close this podcast on out here. Yeah, and we got to be quick with these, Craig. So here we go. 11 a.m. on Fox. Oklahoma travels to Kansas. OU is a 10-point favorite over under 65 and a half. Uh, give me Oklahoma. Still no Jalen Daniels. I think that they had their little kind of downer of a game coming out of the bye week last week. And... That game probably closer than it ever should have been. So, yeah, I think Oklahoma plays a lot better this week and, and gets the dub. I'll take Oklahoma 35-24. to 24. I think they cover the spread. Next up, 11 a.m. on ESPN2. Houston travels to Kansas State. K-State's a 17-point favorite over under 60. Poor Houston, man. God, that would have been such a cool win for them against Texas, but... All for not. I mean, I think they can still grow from that, but, man, what a missed opportunity for them. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, there's no way they're going into Manhattan and beating Kansas State with the way Kansas State is playing right now. So, yeah, give me the Wildcats. They had such a great opportunity, and now they're about to get blitzed by Kansas State. I'll take the Wildcats 42-17. Uh, to 17. I, I think they blow this one out. Next up, West Virginia travels to UCF, and one of the most interesting lines of the week, UCF is a seven-point favorite. The over-under is 59-and-a-half. Who you got? Hmm. Man, that's tough. Um, that's a tough game because it does feel like West Virginia's starting to even out a little bit after winning some close games. And UCF is due, man. They are majorly due. They got JRP back. Um, I don't know. I, I, who do you have here? Yeah, so I, I think that West Virginia covers this spread, but I think UCF wins this game. That's fair. I, yeah, I think they win this game 34-30. I think it's a shootout, but set, a whole touchdown is too much for me. Yeah, I don't think I don't know that West Virginia can run the ball. Well, oh, man, Garrett Green against that UCF and defense. Donaldson. And yeah, but he's not been great. Um the way you thought he would be this year, but I could see where they could be able to run the football in them, but I also see where UCF can really give West Virginia problems too, especially with Plumley back. So yeah, give me UCF, but that's a really interesting, hard to hard to pick game. Uh, next up on ABC, BYU travels to Austin to take on Texas. Texas is a 17.5 point favorite. The over-under is 51. Yeah, give me Texas here. I don't think BYU's um, great in any particular area. I think they're solid to okay to... They swing above and below slightly average, you know, one way or the other. I don't love their offense. I don't think they can score enough points, even though 
Malik Murphy will be the guy in Austin now, and fascinated to see that. I think that that's kind of an ace up the UT offensive sleeve, though, is that you don't really know what to expect if you're Kalani Sataki and Jay Hill and company. So, yeah, give me Texas at home. Just way more talent, I think, in the end. But the Malik Murphy thing will be really interesting to watch now that we know that uh, he's going to be the guy for at least a couple weeks. Yeah, BYU is still not good. I, they're winning games on the I margins agree. like crazy. And I think Malik Murphy's going to run all over them. I think that's going to be kind of a, a change up there. I think Texas wins this game 41-17, to kind of similar to how BYU played against TCU, I think. I think it's going to be a little bit of a route. And if you look at the Texas Tech-BYU game, like Texas Tech still played well enough to win that game. But like just the stupid stuff, like you said, went on the margins and the Stupid stuff that just slides you one direction yeah. or the other. BYU was just fortunate to, you know, turnovers and things like that ended up adding up for them. It absolutely did, and it has for them a lot this year. Yeah, it has. Uh, 7 p.m. on ESPN2, Cincinnati travels to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State is a 7.5-point favorite over under 54 points. Um, yeah, give me Oklahoma State here. Ollie Gordon's been on a tear, man. Um, the young man from Texas uh, has really got going and has been spectacular the last uh, – several weeks now, but especially the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't know if he's just going to run all over Cincinnati, but uh, I think Oklahoma State's playing with a lot of confidence now, and, and Cincinnati's just – they look like the worst team in the Big 12 at the moment. Um, so, yeah, give me the Cowboys. Yeah, I'm going to take Oklahoma State, but it is interesting, best on best, uh, the run defense of Cincy versus the rush offense of Oklahoma State. But Ollie Gordon is my currently Big 12 player of the year. I think he has been spectacular in turning things around uh, for that uh, Cowboys team. Next up, final game of the week, 2.30 p.m. on ESPN+. Plus. Iowa State travels to Baylor. Iowa State's now a two-and-a-half-point favorite. The over-under is 47-and-a-half. That line continues to grow as we speak. Yeah, it's grown a point since we started the podcast because uh, the last <laughs> I looked, it was a point-and-a-half, but now two-and-a-half. Yeah, I, I have to lean Iowa State here. I mean, just Baylor struggles at home. Um, I, I don't think that this is an unwinnable game by any stretch. I think if they play a great game, they have a chance to win this game. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, I just can't give them the benefit of the doubt still, Grayson. I, I have to see more before I start going back to just picking them automatically, um, especially at McLean Stadium. So, yeah, give me Iowa State by a slim margin. You know, this is a game where I think you're playing at home and Baylor very much needs to win at home. Yes, and they do. I think it's going to be a focal point. I think that there is something about this game. The more that I'm looking at, the more that I think Baylor's going to hang in this game. And that I think Baylor, not that they're turning a corner, that they're great or anything like that. I just don't think Iowa State's very good. Right. And I don't necessarily think Baylor's very good, but I think Baylor's going to find a way to stay in this game. And I actually think they're going to eke a win out. I think it'll be something like... Uh, maybe 27 to 24. I think Baylor wins this game and what's going to be a, a very, very tough one, but one that could kind of change the direction of the Dave Randa era. Yeah, I don't know how good Iowa State is either, but they're better than Cincinnati and they're better than UCF. Uh, and they've been better than Baylor. Yes, and they've yeah. been better than Baylor throughout the entire year. Um, so, yeah, that's why I'm going with them. I just think they're a little bit more proven um, and, and strong at this point. But I do think this is a winnable game if Baylor plays and – um, executes at a high level and it has the crowd behind them and all of those things. So uh, interesting game here because if they win, like I said, they're back at 500. They're three and what, two in the Big 12 and they're sitting pretty. They'll hop over Iowa State. They'll be in the upper half of the standings. They'll have Houston coming up, another very winnable yeah, game. Yeah, so this is a, a big swing game and then, you know, on the other side for Iowa State, obviously they're sitting up near the top of the standings right now. If they got a win over Baylor, like they're suddenly sitting really pretty moving forward. So 
Um, this is a it's a big win for whoever is able to walk out of Waco with that win on Saturday. So we will see uh, coming up uh, this weekend, but uh, ought to be a lot of fun and very much looking forward to being back out at McLean Stadium after a couple of weeks away. Um, and uh, that will be a 2.30 kickoff coming up this Saturday uh, just down the road, almost exactly a mile away now. But uh, looking at the predictor here, and yeah, they're like 70-30 favorites on the ESPN side. So Iowa State will be the favorites heading in um, here in a few days. Um, anything else before we go here, Grace? I don't think so. Uh, it was a good show. I'm excited uh, for this matchup. Homecoming, always a great time for Baylor fans and for just the Baylor community in general. So it should be a great time, and I'm very excited for it. It's always nice to, to come back home for a lot of people that, that don't come back very often. Yes, uh, safe travels to everybody. They'll be rolling into town, and uh, welcome back. And hopefully everybody enjoys the, the homecoming uh, set up and, and all of the get-togethers and everything that comes with uh, the festivities this weekend. And also, uh, most of all, hopefully enjoy a great game uh, out of McLean Stadium on Saturday afternoon as well. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate the, those of you in the mailbag. Appreciate those of you who never say anything and just listen. And we're not really aware of you, but we appreciate you. Uh, for everybody out there, for Garrett Ross uh, here producing and for Grayson Grudhafer, I'm Craig Smoke, and we will talk to you next Tuesday at 11.15. Till next time, this has been the BearCast on Sikkim365.com.